Well, thank you, Grant, for sharing our scripture reading this morning. We will be here in Romans 15. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us or first Sunday in a while, we want to welcome you today. And also just to, to say a little bit about what we're doing in our time in the word today. We are working our way line by line through our church covenant. Uh, this church covenant is a, is a promise that we've made in light of our relationship with God to one another. These are the things that we believe the Bible has called us to commit to doing for one another in light of who we know Jesus Christ to be in light of what he has done for us. And so part of that church covenant is right there on the front of your bulletin. This is the section we're working through right now, the second of four sections. And we have been talking about what it means for us then to share the responsibility of our church. And we defined in week one of this month that, that the responsibility of our church is primarily that we would grow up into him who is the head of the church, Christ Jesus. The primary responsibility we have is to grow up spiritually into our head, Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is what we're going to talk about this morning is by welcoming one another. And so we're going to talk today about what this welcome looks like. We see it here in Romans 15, this admonition that's the basis for this line of our covenant that we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Now, there's all kinds of one another commands in the New Testament. You're going to see them all over the place. We're commanded to love one another, to serve one another, to teach one another, to sing with one another. We're commanded to forgive one another and to bear with one another. There's all kinds of of one another commands that we find in the New Testament. And in many ways, the one we're going to look at this morning may seem fairly small and inconsequential in comparison with some of the others that we see in the scriptures. But I want to encourage you to see the beauty and the glory of this command to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. And so I've given you an outline there on the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along. Uh, this morning, it might be helpful to you as we look at these verses and as we see what God has for us in the word today. Let's pray together before we go any farther. Father, thank you for this word, your word, your holy word, your truth given to us that we might hear and believe and be transformed. We pray that you would change us today a little more into the image of Christ, less of us and more of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we got a lot to get through and a short time to do it, so we're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, The first thing that we see here is we think about what does it mean for us to welcome one another, and we're just going to walk verse by verse through these scriptures this morning. The first thing that we see, if we're going to have this kind of a welcome, the kind of welcome that Christ has for us in his kingdom, first of all, it means that we must willingly bear with one another. Now, a lot of times when we use that terminology in our current culture, if we talk about bearing with someone, it comes with a certain amount of angst and and a certain uh, amount of annoyance. 
But that's not the way that that's used in the New Testament. The idea of bearing with one another is wrapped up in the kind of love and forbearance that Christ has for us. Again, each of these things we're going to look at this morning, you need to picture it in light of our relationship with Christ first. This welcome will not work if we, unless we see it in light of the way that Christ has welcomed us. And so we willingly bear with one another. In Romans 14, Paul was addressing something in the Roman church, some issues that were beginning to arise in the Roman church that were causing problems among the believers there. And, and we understand that there were kind of two factions that were beginning to develop and he refers to one as the weak faction and the other as the strong faction. Now, when you hear weak and strong, don't think that one is better than the other. That's not the idea. But, but he's talking about the way that they are viewing certain practices in regard to their faith. And so those he refers to in Romans 14 as the weak, they were holding on to special diets and special days as a means of worshiping God. Now, now for many of these, they were probably running back to the Old Testament scriptures and seeing that there were special dietary restrictions and special holy days that were set aside uh, to worship God. And so it's probably the idea that, that they were continuing to cling to as former Jews, those who they were continuing to cling to those Old Testament practices as a means of continuing to worship the Lord. And so these are those that he refers to as the weak. You see it in Romans 14 verses 2 and 5. He says, one person believes that he may eat anything. Those would be the ones he's referring to as the strong. While the weak person eats only vegetables. Perhaps they had a Daniel-like diet there in the book of Daniel. We see Daniel has a diet of vegetables. They were perhaps practicing this. This has even arisen anew in our day. The Daniel diet is a, is a popular thing in the church today. And he's saying some folks are believing that this is a way in which they can worship God through these special diets. And others are saying, no, we just really love bacon and cheeseburgers. Okay, so... And in verse 5 he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, a special day, a holy day, while another esteems all days alike. Again, these weaker brothers that he's referring to are are tied up in diets and days. And, And what he's talking about here though in the beginning of Romans 15 is this, that the strong have an obligation in relation to these weaker brothers. And I want you to see that. You see, the strong had a special duty and a special debt that needed to be paid in relation to these weaker brothers. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So as Paul is working through the special diets and special days in Romans 14, he's trying to help them to understand that while these may be means that we can use to glorify the Lord, that they are not absolutes that all Christians must practice at all times in all places. These are merely externals that we may or may not participate in. Let's bring this modern day and talk for a moment about the issue of face masks. Now I know this is a tender issue. And if you want to get people worked up. 
just start talking about their COVID response. Bear with your pastor for a moment. I want to talk about this because I think this is a Romans 14 kind of an issue. In Romans 14, he's laying out some things that they may or may not do in worship to the Lord. And here's what's been said in so many churches today. Well, if you really love people, then you'll wear a face mask. We've begun to equate this with the fulfillment of the great commandment. And again, this is an external action that may be a way that we can love others and worship God. But but it is not definitive, definitive of that. So it may be a way that we can worship the Lord and love one another. But it can also be just as loving for us not to do that. It's a matter of conscience. And unfortunately, in our culture today, we have all but lost the ability to engage matters of conscience or what's sometimes referred to as Christian liberty. These are issues in which the Bible doesn't speak chapter and verse about what we should do. You're not going to find Hezekiah 4, 6 saying, wear your face mask or you're not loving to people. By the way, there is no book of Hezekiah, if you were wondering about that. You're just not going to find that command. So it's a, it's a matter of conscience that we must engage in. We must determine for ourselves how we're going to respond. So Paul is not saying these folks who are engaging in special diets and special days are in sin and they just need to get over themselves. He's saying, no, they're doing this. They're following their conscience. And, and yet, and the, Strong brothers, the ones he's referring to as the strong in which he lumps himself in that category. He's saying, but others are recognizing, no, we don't have to do these things and we can still worship God together. Here's the key. The key is that those who observe the special diets and special days and those who don't observe the special diets and special days are called to worship Christ side by side with one another and to welcome each other without allowing those things to become a division. You see, that's the key in the current day of masks and vaccines and political divisions and all the mess that we are dealing with right now. The key in the church is learning to welcome one another, especially the other who doesn't agree with my stance upon these things. We're not talking about core doctrinal issues here. We're not talking about whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, whether or not He rose from the dead. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about matters of conscience where each must decide for him or herself and each must determine how they will glorify the Lord. And so the strong here have a special duty and a special debt. It's described in Romans 13 where it says, we're to owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We have a love debt that we're to pay to one another. Again, don't misunderstand, not as a means of obtaining the salvation that Christ purchased for us and freely offers to us, but as a result of having been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, now we fulfill this love debt to one another by serving one another, by welcoming one another. Another by practicing these one another commands. So it begins by this welcome begins by willingly bearing with each other. It continues by us eagerly building one another up. 
This is a very active word that's happening here in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. For what reason? Notice, it's to build him up. That is the primary idea that we've been looking at this month is based in Ephesians 4. The primary responsibility of the church is that we would build one another up in love. That we would grow up into him who is the head into Christ. That there would be a transformation that takes place in our lives as a result of the gospel. Which is not just something that we hear one time, believe, get baptized, and then just kind of float along until heaven. No, the gospel is what continues to transform form us from glory to glory so we eagerly build one another up and he gives us two thoughts here one we do not live now as believers we do not live to please ourselves you see those who are apart from christ those who do not yet know the saving grace of god in jesus christ live primarily to please themselves that's what it means to be a sinner that i am wrapped up in myself and what i want and how i want it and it's only when jesus comes in and shows us the more excellent excellent way of loving others and loving him and not being so wrapped up in ourselves it's only then that we begin to understand this life that god has for us hebrews 13 says do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so this welcome invites us to share with one another, to share with one another the knowledge that we are receiving from our time in God's word, to share with one another our physical resources that God has entrusted to us, to share our time, to share our friendships with one another. This is the invitation we don't live to please ourselves we live instead to please christ and others we desire to take up that attitude that we see described in philippians chapter 2 i love this chapter philippians 2 beginning in verse 3 says do nothing from rivalry or conceit conceit that self-centered mentality but in humility that's an other-centered mentality. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind, this attitude, this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if you want to see what that mindset's like, read the rest of that passage. It describes what Christ did for us at the cross and his sacrifice for us. We'll come back to that thought before we end this morning. So we willingly bear with one another. We eagerly build one another up and then we remind ourselves that he lovingly bore our reproach. Again, think back to verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The question we want to be asking is, how has Christ welcomed us? And that's exactly what he gets at here in verse 3. Let's look at it again. 
He said, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. He's quoting from Psalm 69 that we read earlier in our service this morning. He's quoting there from Psalm 69 and he's making application of David's statement in Psalm 69 verse 9 to Jesus. And he's talking about this issue of a reproach. Now, that's not a word that we use a whole lot these days, the word reproach. But I want you to understand here, this word means a deep insult. It it means a, a deep and abiding insult has taken place. And he says here that he were, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The me here, he's applying to Christ. But who is the you in that statement? If you go back to Psalm 69, it answers the question. David is speaking about how those who have reproached, who have insulted God by the way that they have lived, that those who have insulted God, that those insults have fallen upon David in his situation because of his faithfulness to God, that the insults who have insulted God, that insult has fallen upon David. And then here, Paul applies this to Jesus, saying that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He bore the insult. But I want you to understand something here. There's actually a a dual reproach that exists in the gospel. There's a dual reproach, and here's what I mean by that. First of all, we remind ourselves that our sin is an insult against God. That our sin is a slight against a holy God. It's not just that I have done some bad things or or broken God's law, but my very attitude apart from Christ, my very sin nature is an eternal insult against God. It's a reproach. And so, where Paul is applying this is helping us to see that at the cross, Jesus bore the insult, the reproach, that my sin was against a holy God. Because you see, at the core, our sin denies the goodness of God. Our sin denies the holiness of God. Our sin denies the pure and perfect character of God. It gets really deep if you begin to dive into these things. But we need to see the gravity of these things. And I think R.C. Sproul helps as much as anyone us to understand this reality. That our sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It's an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. At the very heart, our sin is a denial of God himself. We need to understand that. It is an insult against the one true and living God and Jesus bore that insult upon himself. But also understand that it's a double reproach. 
Not only is our sin a reproach against God, but our sin causes us to receive the reproach of God, which is not just an insult, it's an indictment. Whereas our reproach against God in our sin is utterly unjustified, God's reproach of us because of our sin is utterly justified. He has every right to condemn all of us and ban us from his presence for eternity. That's what hell is, by the way. It's God banning us from his presence for eternity. It's rightfully deserved. Until we understand that, we don't understand the gravity of our sin and we don't understand our need for a savior. Until we understand what we have done and that our cosmic treason is deserving of death and eternal separation from God. Until we understand that, we won't get the cross. We won't understand what Jesus was doing and how he was bearing not only our reproach against God, but he was also bearing God's reproach against us. God's indictment of us was put upon His perfect Son. He who knew no sin of His own became sin for us so that through Him we might become the righteousness of God. He bore the double reproach. The sinless one suffered in our place. That's what we'll remind ourselves of this Good Friday. Hebrews 13, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. We're going to have to move a little quicker if I'm going to get through all these this morning. This is what I get for preaching a seven-point sermon. Courageously, then, we brave trials in hope. Courageously, we brave trials together in hope. He turns to the scriptures here in verse four. It's so beautiful. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is the Bible telling us what the Bible is all about. I love that. We're not left without understanding of why God gave us this written word. First of all, the scriptures give us instruction and man, we need it. We need the instruction of God's word in order to understand who this God is and what he requires of us. There's so much false teaching related to the word of God today. I don't have time to get into all of it, but but I want to address one particular false teaching that's been around for a long time. And it's those who would say that we're just New Testament believers and we have no use for that Old Testament stuff. Those who would draw a delineation between the Old and New Testament and say, well, you know, those first 39 books were fine for history and those kinds of things. But but we really don't need those as New Testament believers. And I want to tell you, that is a false and utterly dangerous teaching. Because if you don't have the first 39 books of the Bible, there are so many foundational things that you cannot understand. You need that foundation. Now, the New Testament brings revelation of it and clarifies some of the cloudy things that we come away with from the Old Testament. But but we understand we need both Testaments. We need the fullness of the counsel of God that we might walk in 
his ways. By the way, that thought that we're just New Testament Christians and we don't need the Old Testament, it's nothing new. This has gone back hundreds of years. John Calvin in the 1600s addressed this and he said, We find here in this verse a most striking condemnation of those fanatics who vaunt that the Old Testament is abolished. Again, this is not a new teaching. That it belongs not in any way, in any degree, to Christians. For with what front can they turn away Christians from those things which, as Paul testifies, have been appointed by God for their salvation? So for hundreds of years, this false teaching has abounded that we are just New Testament believers, that Old Testament stuff, we can just ignore it. No, we need all of it. All Scripture, as the Bible says, is breathed out by God. The scriptures give us instruction. The scriptures give us encouragement. The scriptures give us encouragement for the life God has called us to live. The Bible says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work this is the training manual for the christian life and it is not optional equipment for us people of god and it will not be sufficient for us only to dive into this book on sunday morning it's daily day by day we need the nourishment that comes from the word of god we need the call to endure we need the hope of encouragement that comes from god himself and this hope will not disappoint us Next on your outline, then part of this welcome is that we openly band together in Christ. We're joined together in Christ. Remember what Jesus prayed for on the night when he was facing the cross that next day. As he gathered with his disciples there in the upper room and as they were sharing together that first Lord's Supper. As they were doing that, (coughs) excuse me, together Remember how Jesus prayed for them in John 17. It's so powerful that the very center of Jesus' prayer was that he was making supplication for our unity. Notice I didn't say just for their unity. For our unity. As those who would follow him in all the generations to come, he prayed looking forward to the kingdom. He prayed for our unity. Let's look at it in John 17. Jesus said, I did not ask for these only, not just for these disciples in the room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, folks. We believe because of the apostolic word that went out into the world. What do you pray, though, that they may all be one? unified in him just as you father are in me and i in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me i have given to them why that they may be one even as we are one i in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one he prayed for our unity and in a day of rampant division The unity of the church is needed, I believe, more than ever. That our divided and dissentious world would see the glory of God in the bringing together of various peoples under one banner, the banner of Christ. 
So not only did Jesus pray for our unity, but he's the very source and center of our unity. We're not talking about unity for unity's sake here, folks. We're talking about unity in Christ. Unity in him. He is the source and the center. So Tim Keller said this unity, it's, it's ultimately a supernatural gift. It's a gift that God must give you, and it comes from a common following of Christ. This is the source and center of our unity. It's him. It's a byproduct of seeking something other than unity. We're seeking Christ. Let me see this, say this. The more we seek unity for unity's sake, the more divided we will be. But the more that we seek unity in Jesus Christ, the more God loves to answer those prayers and grant us that sweet communion with one another. Two more this morning. This welcome also involves the fact that we magnificently bow together in worship. We bow together in worship before our King. But there's some warnings and reminders here in verse 6. He says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful picture. Voices singing one song in harmony with one another. Various parts coming together to make beautiful music unto the Lord. But there are some sour notes that we need to be warned about in this day. First of all, we need to remind ourselves that dissension among us is a disaster for the church. In nearly every one of the New Testament letters, there are warnings about dissension and division in the church. And those who, who would rise up against one another in various factions, there are warnings all throughout the scriptures. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says, but God says himself, this is something I hate. Now, God reserves that word hate for a very few things in Scripture. There's very few things that God says that he hates. But those who stir up dissension and division among the brotherhood of the church, God says, I hate that. I hate that. It drives a a knife in the very heart of what God has for his church. It's nothing new. We live in a day of division, but there have been dangerous divisions in the church for many years again go back a couple hundred years you find richard baxter saying this he says he that is not a son of peace is not a son of god man the puritans just get right down to it don't they he that is not a son of peace is not a son of god all other sins destroy the church consequentially but division and separation demolish it directly this strikes at the very heart of what Christ did for us, that we might be brought together. Why was his final prayer meeting before the cross centered upon our unity? Because he knew that this was the way in which we would glorify God and others would be brought into the kingdom because they would see people from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds 
They would see people from all kinds of political persuasions. They would see all kinds of people with different skin colors and educational attainments. They would see people from all different varieties coming together under one banner. And the world would look at that and wonder and say, we don't understand that. Our world understands divisions. Our world loves to categorize people. But God loves to bring various peoples together. So we are called then into one body with one voice. You see it all throughout the Bible. Let me just show you two places. Ephesians 2. As a result of the gospel, it says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, the two most divided and utterly unlike one another groups that have ever existed on the face of this planet. He says, in the gospel, God has brought them together, making the two one. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And so we don't have Jewish churches and Gentile churches. We have one church. And the church fought hard for that unity. Go read Acts chapter 15 and see the battle that was waged in order that we might be one. One in Christ. And then in Ephesians 4, 4, he said there's one body and one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all we are united in him and so finally this morning this welcome involves the reality that eternally he brings us together for his glory so this makes the welcome a whole lot bigger than just a greeting on sunday morning That we have been eternally welcomed into the kingdom of God, not because we were such good and nice people. Not at all. We have been welcomed into the kingdom of God purely based upon the finished work of Christ. So with all that we've seen The result of this is in verse 7. Therefore, because of all that we have seen, therefore, as a result of these things, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so the question that one needs to be ringing in our hearts and minds as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together in just a moment is this. How has Christ welcomed us? We need to see the fullness of how Christ has welcomed us into his kingdom. First of all, he welcomed us selflessly. He set aside himself. He who had every right to be the center of the universe, to be worshipped and adored forever, he set aside that so that he could do for us what we never could have done for ourselves. He welcomed us selflessly. He sacrificed himself so that we could be welcomed into the kingdom. That's what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table as we're about to this morning. When we come to the Lord's table, we're reminding ourselves that we are welcome at the table. That's the greatest miracle that's ever taken place in the history of the universe. That sinners like us, lost in rebellion against God, have been welcomed to his table. 
And we did nothing to earn a place there. We did everything to earn being cast out. And then Christ did that finished work on the cross that opened up the invitation for us to come. Not as servants to the table, but as sons and daughters seated with the Father. That's a welcome. Kent Hughes reminds us that whenever we crush the bread of communion between our teeth and swallow the cup of His blood, we cannot escape the fact that He did not please Himself. Instead, He welcomed us sacrificially. Understand the cost of your welcome into the kingdom. You see, this will change the way then we invite others to come and to know this Savior. We need to see this. Understanding that the cost that was paid that we could have an open invitation into His kingdom will change the way that we invite others. It will keep us humble. And it will keep us earnestly desiring that others come to this table with us. I'll leave you with these words from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter reminds us that he himself, Christ Jesus our Lord, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And notice, church, he doesn't say by his wounds you will be healed. By his wounds you might be healed. By his wounds you could be healed. By his wounds, there's a finished work here. You have been healed. And you are welcome at his table. And he bids you to come. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, we invite you to join with us in the Lord's table this morning. We're going to share this Lord's Supper as a reminder of this beautiful gospel. That his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could come freely into the kingdom of God. No entry fee. No potluck dinner in which you've got to bring something in order to come in. We come with nothing and he grants us everything based on the finished work of Christ. As we prepare to come to this table this morning, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the open invitation and the glorious welcome that you have extended to us. You have taken us in and granted us not just a place of servitude, but a place of sonship. You have welcomed us not to scrape up crumbs off the floor, but to feast with you. To sit in places of honor because every seat at your table is a place of honor. And we're utterly undeserving. 
We're dumbfounded to realize that you have welcomed us in and done so wholeheartedly. No reservation needed. No entry fee. Nothing that we must contribute. All has been completed. It's finished, Jesus said. The table is ready. We are welcome to come. Father, I pray this morning as we come to this table, we'll be reminded of the gospel. We'll be reminded of Christ's broken body and shed blood and that our hearts would respond in gratitude, in overflowing gratitude to our King and Savior who died on the cross so that we could be carried to the table, seated where we don't belong, carried by Your love for us, the places of honor. He bore our reproach so that we could be redeemed. We rejoice in that this morning. Lead us to the table today, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.